Welcome back to Brain Core, the podcast that introduces you to new psychology and neuroscience research. I'm Tolu Faramika, and I'm joined by my co-host, Christina Valkanis. We are also joined by Keith Kirkland, who, along with being the co-founder of WearWorks, is a fashion and industrial designer. Keith, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. For sure. So, Christina, how are you as well? How's January going for you? Uh, new year, new me. No, not really, though. <laughs> um, I'm doing well. It's it's going pretty well. It's flying by, though. Like, the other day, I looked when I looked at the day, I was like, oh, my goodness, we're already more than halfway through. So, wild. Really? I feel like it's going slow. I guess it depends on what you're doing, too, right? Sometimes yeah, it drags. True. Certain months drag, and then certain months will just go fast. But this has felt fast for me. That's yeah. true. And, like, I had a birthday on Monday, so, you know. it's Oh, like, true. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I did see that. Happy belated birthday. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, so to me, it's kind of like this. I feel like, okay, cool. It, it does feel like the month is, like, going by a lot faster now than my right. birthday passed, you know. Yeah. I think at the beginning it was slow for me because I wasn't doing much. But now, because school has started, it's like every day is blur. Yeah, it's Um, always a crisis. (laughs) (laughs) So we often try to highlight the backgrounds of our guests for students listening who may be wondering, like, how they got to where they are. So, Keith, what has your journey been like up to this point? Yeah, and so um, I came through through this door in a a very twisted and and convoluted way. Um, So I started out uh, with a... A, a background. I, I did a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Um, after my mechanical engineering degree, um, I decided I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. And I went to school. Um, I went back to school to do another bachelor's degree in accessories design, which is handbags and shoes. And so I was doing handbag and shoe design um, at FIT, which is what brought me to New York. And then um, after a few months of or after a few years of working in the fashion industry, um, I started to think about how we could use design to kind of help forward humanity. And um, I decided to go back to school for a third time and get a master's degree in industrial design. Um, And part of that program, they had invented this program called Global Innovation Design. And you basically got to spend six months studying media design at Keio University in Tokyo. And you spent four months studying innovative design and engineering, which was a joint program at the Royal College of Art and Imperial College of London. And I signed up for that. And when I came back into this, I realized how much I really miss fashion. But I was really interested in some of these applications of technology. And I spent my thesis year essentially trying to build a suit that would allow a person to download Kung Fu and the suit would help them learn using vibrations. Right. I saw that. So does this suit exist now? It does not exist. Uh, I wish it existed so much. Um, you know, like I, I, I came across a few challenges when I was trying to build it. I mean, well, the first thing was, was that all the technology to build it existed already. It just hadn't been combined to use in that particular format, which is great news from an entrepreneurial point of view. It means you don't have to invent every part of the wheel. You can take the pieces that already exist and put them together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bigger challenge was, is that there was no language to communicate information through touch with. So there was no haptic language and haptic means of or relating to the sense of touch. 
And so if I wanted you to raise your shoulder two inches up using vibration, like how would I tell you to do that in a way that didn't require you to learn basically an entirely new language? And so um, when I graduated, I kind of set out realizing that this was a huge problem and that I needed to solve this problem first. And right at the time of my graduation is when I connected with my co-founders. Um, they were both classmates of mine. And uh, um, they both had this super strong interest to want to go into haptics. And so they were like, hey, we were thinking of starting a haptics company. Um, you did haptics for a whole year for your project. You know, maybe we should do something together. And that was kind of like the beginning of like, you know, basically the beginning of WearWorks. Mm -hmm. So the product that WearWorks has put out right now, Wayband, could you tell us a little bit more about it and like how that the idea came up? Yeah. And so uh, Wayband is a wearable wrist device that gently communicates navigation information using only vibrations without the need for any visual or audio cues. And so what we did was, is we figured out a way to point a person in a straight line and we designed a system that would allow you to get pointed into a straight line while you're on a straight street, collect a segment, and then get pointed to another straight line. Um, and back in 2017, we were able to use this technology to help the first person who was blind run 15 miles of the New York City Marathon with outside of assistance. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think this stuff is so cool because... Like, I don't understand the technical parts of the process, but, um, and I don't actually remember how I came across the website or Wayband. It may have been like a random YouTube suggestion for your TED Talk. And I remember you saying something like you and your co-founders were trying to figure out how to design stop, like the action to stop moving, yeah. but that there was no haptic language in existence for that. Um, and I think right there, I like texted Christina and I was like, we have to get him on the show <laughs> because this stuff is so cool. But yeah, so you already mentioned it, the term of the episode, which is haptics or haptic technology. This is conveying information through touch, right? Yes, exactly. And so, you know, the same way like optics is for eyes, haptic basically is for skin. Right. So I think haptic technology is all around us, right? So on our phones, certain vibrations tell us if we got a text or if we're getting a call. Or like during video games, um, the way the controller vibrates when you hit something to like add a sense of immersion to the game, that's all haptic tech. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so um, a big part of it is like, you know, um, definitely the video game industry is super huge. Um, and they were probably some of the, the first people to kind of like really commercially deploy haptics. And then, of course, you also have cell phones, um, which initially started off as just a way to let you know that your phone was ringing um, so it didn't have to make a sound like when you were in a meeting and your phone starts ringing, it's really annoying. So, mm -hmm. you know, it started off with this kind of like very practical use case, but then it was like, Oh wait, actually we can give you different haptics for text messages versus emails. You know, we can ha allow you to potentially assign haptics to like, you know, callers, you know? So right. I think it, it started to become more rich. Um, but the haptics industry, I mean, it, it's been around for, I mean, I mean, I mean, well, it's been around forever, but um, the exploration of it from the point of view of technology has been pretty strong over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, but we still haven't really seen a lot of uh, haptic first experiences um, the same way we see screen first experiences or audio first experiences like we get with, you know, 
watching movies or art or um, listening to music. And so I think that like from the point of view of, you know, uh, in the world of the five senses, you know, like vision is like the patriarch, you know, and um, touch is kind of like at the bottom of that list. Um, And one of the things that we feel is that like you have all this skin. It's one of the primary senses that you need to live. Um, But we haven't done much with it from a point of view of design. And so what if we use the skin as a communications channel to deliver information in a more intuitive and less obtrusive way, especially when everything right now is basically fighting for your visual and audio attention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I know like now mostly haptics are being used to kind of enhance technology. Like what you've said, it's kind of just a, an extra. Like um, I know Apple's doing it with their watches now. They vibrate and uh, I was driving the other day and my sister put on Google Maps and she was like, oh my goodness, my watch was vibrating. I didn't realize it was because you have to turn. Um, but as of now, mostly it's just kind of giving a heads up. And I think when somebody taps you on the wrist or just taps you to get the, your attention, it's kind of this this natural instinct to to turn towards them and see what they want to say to you but how can we get haptic technology beyond just being a heads up and use it to convey more than just hey look some we have something interesting to show you to giving an actual message with vibration do you think that's possible yeah i think not only is it possible i think kind of like a big part of it is kind of like the future that we're hoping to build out Mm -hmm. um and so if you think about it right now you know um, lots of people have the option of being a UX or a UI designer. Of course, you need to have strong design skills. But the reason that those jobs exist is because the proliferation of screens. Like mm. I'm looking at two screens right now, my computer, my extra monitor, my TV's behind me, my cell phone is sitting next to me, my Apple Watch is on my wrist, right? Mm. I, there's, there's, I have five screens personally in this room, <laughs> you know? So... Once you have so many screens available, you basically create a channel for design, for products, for experiences, right? You know, like before the invention of like the phonograph, right? Musicians had the same problem. They used to have to sit in a room with you and play their trumpet so that you could hear it and then maybe pay them. And now this thing called a record comes out. You know, I can make music in my house. You can listen to my music wherever you are in the world. And more importantly, you can still pay me even though you've never met me personally, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was looking from a point of view of really kind of like there, why is touch information not so readily designed for? And a big part of that is infrastructure, right? You know, like uh, right now a musical artist can make music because we all have speakers that we listen to. I have speakers on my computer, I have speakers on my phone, I have speakers on my headphones. I have another pair of headphones. I have four pairs of speakers around me, right? And so when you start looking at it from a point of view of infrastructure, you realize it's really easy to design visual and audio experiences because that's the technology platforms that we have access to. But what's the haptic equivalent of headphones? And that's what I'm hoping ultimately Wayband will become. And now once you have this device that you can design touch experiences for, the idea is to open it up to the community to see what kind of experiences they want to design. We started with the use case of navigation because it was dear to us. 
But, you know, much like Apple built all of their, when they came out with the iPhone, they built the first apps. iMessenger is an app. Phone is an app. You know, Safari is an app. To create the example of what's possible. But what we're really excited about is what happens when we open this up and it's possible for anyone because now there's a, a device that anyone can afford for the same price that they would buy a pair of headphones for um, and create their own haptic experiences. Hmm. Right. So does that mean that you're trying to expand past the audience of just like the visually impaired? Ultimately, you know, the, the, the goal, when, when we first started talking to people who had a visual impairment, they told us, don't build a blind device. Build a device that everyone can use that's optimized for the blind experience. Um, at the end of the day, a person who's blind or visually impaired doesn't want to have to go buy a separate piece of technology that only they have to buy because of their sight loss. They, wanna, they want the same technologies, computers, cell phones, the same things that you use just to be accessible so they can use them too. Maybe not in the same way, but you know, that way it's, 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 it's all the same tech. And a, that's, a, that's a two-part problem. Because one part is there's a big stigma um, around using assistive technology. Like mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who probably should be using a cane, but have enough vision where they don't find it, they don't need it to walk around outside. Um, because even though it would help them dramatically be much safer, there's stigmas when you when you walk outside with a cane versus when you don't. Um, and then also to on top of that, um, there's a stigma. And then there's a part around cost, you know, like if you, if you build like one, you know, particle accelerator chamber, right. It's a, it's a billion dollars. But yeah. now if you, if you had like, you know, a few hundred thousand of them, the cost would drop dramatically um, because you just get better economies at scale. And so our idea is, is that a lot of technology for the blind and visually impaired is really, really expensive. Um, largely due to the fact that there aren't a lot of competitors in the space. So we wanted to come out with a device that ultimately, you know, any person could potentially afford. And, you know, and the only way to do that is by not going only with the blind and visually impaired community. We're focused on them. And most of our marketing is targeted toward the blind and visually impaired community because that's who we're starting with. And you have to win your first customer. But ultimately what we see is, is that the blind and visually impaired use case is the most challenging use case we could have picked. So by solving it first, we basically proved that we can do it in every other instance. And what I'm hoping that, and that we're all hoping at WearWorks is that this is going to be a model that people are going to understand and be like, wow, okay, if you could do this for a person who is blind to run a marathon, then you can do this for me, like doing my marathon training or me biking through the city or me traveling in Japan, or me, you know, hiking, you know, Kilimanjaro, yeah. right? Wherever, you know? Yeah, even right. me right now, I'm thinking I'm, I would use it because when I drive Siri, sometimes it's annoying. Like, she interrupts your music, she comes on, she's like, turn left, and you're like, oh. <laughs> the, that was just the best part of the song right there. Or sometimes, like... I don't know. I have three siblings and we, when we're in the car together and they're arguing and you can't necessarily hear, but if you had something haptic telling you directions, then you, mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about not hearing the cue. So it could be helpful in that way too. 
Exactly. And one of the, one of the biggest use cases that we're actually looking at um, outside of the blind and visually impaired use case is uh, the use case for women who travel alone. Um, mm-hmm. I had a lot of friends who were just kind of like, hmm, yeah, I got to Paris and, you know, I was in this like, you know, sketchy area and I, I looked lost with my suitcase spinning in circles trying to figure out which way I need to go. And, you know, and she just kind of like it just it just garners me a lot of not necessarily dangerous, but more unwanted attention and right. unwanted engagement because people constantly walk up and like, oh, hey, let me help you. Let me help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, you know, I'd rather just not have that experience. I'd rather just have my information and be able to get to where I'm getting to and be discreet so I can look like I always know where I'm going. Um, and so we, we see that we see women who travel alone as a, as a super huge opportunity around like, you know, getting information discreetly, um, and potentially being able to tie some safety into that, like maybe giving access, um, to your app, to a friend so that they, you know, someone knows where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely see that as a use. Um, it adds like a sense of independence, um, I was in London once and my, my phone had died and I, my, like I just said goodbye to my friends. So I was basically relying on my memory on how to get back to my aunt's place. Um, and I had to ask for directions because I didn't even know how to get back to like the train station. It was, it was a little scary. Mm-hmm. So I definitely see that being, being a use. Um, so we are trying to like highlight an intersection here. Do you think that there is an aspect of psychology involved in the development of Wayband? Yeah. And I, I think the biggest thing really comes with um, is really understanding how the brain processes touch information. Um, and so getting a sense of, so th- there's a, so there's the device part of it, which is, okay, we make these devices and haptics is a really, really big world. Like we're doing haptics through vibration, but temperature change, you know, pressure, um, dragging across the skin, like tension and shear forces along the skin. All of these, we have four different receptors in our skin that pick up on all these different things and send all that information directly back to the brain. And so how the brain processes information and how it processes touch information and understanding, more importantly, the areas physiologically speaking, like, for example, like a bigger part of your brain uh, you know, the somatosensory cortex is, you know, which is connected to processing touch information, a bigger part of your brain, a, a bigger part of that region goes to your hands, your tongues and your feet than basically the rest of your body. So in these areas, you, you have a very, very high touch resolution. Um, and, you know, like, you know, they, they, they figured out this, this resolution based off of a two point test where they put two points progressively closer together and try to distinguish get you to distinguish like when you can't distinguish between the two points like when Mm -hmm. did the two points become one point and on your hand it's like millimeters and on your back it's like you know almost like a few centimeters right and so if you're designing touch information for an experience if you're designing a touch experience to communicate information through the back you need to have much beefier bigger vibration motors Mm-hmm. then you would need to have, for example, if I put one on, on the tip of your tongue. And so while we're, we have to take these into consideration, like also the, 
the areas and the thickness of skin have an impact on how well you receive touch information in that space. So what we do is like, for example, the device is pictured most of the times it's worn like a watch on top of the wrist. But the way most of us actually wear it is we wear it on the underside of the wrist because that part of the skin is so thin that Mm -hmm. any vibration like triggers a reaction that the brain picks up much more so than if you put it on like, you know, your knee. And so having a good understanding of like, because we're making information the the same way, like a graphic designer needs to understand, like when, when, when humans see red, we associate it with danger Mm -hmm. or when we see blue, it calms us or, you know, when we, you know, these colors have emotional associations, you know, that are pretty well documented and, Mm -hmm. you know, sounds have the same thing. I don't know them for sound. I'm not in a sound space. But I'm sure there's like, you know, like there's a there's a note that sounds good to everybody. Maybe it's middle C. I don't know. You know, um, <laughs> Maybe. you know, like right? <laughs> there's a note that sounds good to everybody almost or most of the people. And yeah. you know, so what we're doing is, is we're taking these principles of understanding the physiology of the body and how the body has receptors to receive touch information, how the brain takes that signal and processes that information. And then ultimately how you get from here's this information to here's an action I should take. Like, how do you get from this haptic to I should stop right this very second? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great um, application of like the research that's out there on sensations and perceptions. Um, I think I even saw that like people get used to the vibrating cues, like from the way band in like 10 seconds. So it's like a natural response almost. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that like from the point of view of the senses, right, vision is pretty slow. It takes you quite some time, you know, if you're if you're using vision, you know, like that's how you can easily look at a sign and then miss it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, but um, sound is the fastest. Sound mm-hmm. is like instantaneously, you know, like sound hits you right at, at the speed of sound. Touch is somewhere <laughs> in the middle, right? Touch is, yeah. touch is somewhere in the middle. And the thing is, is like if if you look at it like a data file, right? Vision is basically video, right? It takes a longer time to download, you know, and yeah. and sound is an audio file, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, whereas touch uses a much more primitive part of the brain. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about uh, the experience around touch is is that like for lots of people with uh, uh, neurodegenerative conditions. Or uh, people that are neuroatypical, mm-hmm. you know, like like people with autism, for example. A lot of times, where the the sensory information may be getting crossed in a way, a lot of times the touch center is perfectly intact because it's in an older part of the brain. Mm. At least I think that this is totally from all the understanding that I've gained so far. And so, a lot of times, going through the touch channel might be an easier way. For example for a person who's autistic to gather information because that channel can be, you know, like that channel is, is preserved. Exactly. And, you know, like it, 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 it has what we, what we figure as like somewhat typical, you know what I'm saying? Like patterns that now we can design for at mass. And so there's a lot of value from the point of view of using touch. And the other thing too is that like its ability to communicate lots of information, right? Yeah. You know, it's like if you think about a kiss or a punch, it's it's like instantaneously you recognize that something occurred, right? Now, 
depending on whether you like being kissed or punched or who did the kissing or punching, your reaction might, it's probably going to be different. <laughs> right? right. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, but instantaneously you recognize. And so we were looking, you know, like, and a, a huge part of that came from my personal experience and, and, and just like, you know, I've been studying languages just for fun. Um, yeah for, you know, a long time, but I haven't really gotten good at any of them. You know, like I'm pretty actually terrible in all of them. You know, like my, <laughs> my Japanese is terrible. My German, I had to give up on German, you know, like, Same was, here. you know, and my Spanish, like it can get me food in a bar and I can withdraw money if I go to the bank, you know oh, what yeah. I'm saying? Like, well, you know, the basic, right. You know, mm-hmm. um, but you know, like, and, and then I, I, I picked up Swedish, you know, and I started Swedish learning Swedish is Swedish. hard. Actually, it's really grammatically similar to English. So I oh. find that if you just know the Swedish word, most of the time, not 100%, but I'll say a good 70% of the beginner stuff is it just replacing the Swedish English word with the Swedish word. It's almost the exact same order. So it actually, even though the words are really different, mm-hmm. it was easier for me personally because, you know, like in, in, in Japanese, you, you start with the person you put all the details in the middle and then you say what that person did at the end of the sentence. It's like, I, yesterday, with my uncle, at the coffee shop, drank yeah. coffee. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, that's literally how the sentence, the verb comes at the very, is the last thing you say. So you can mm-hmm. listen to a whole sentence and have no idea, like, what was being done yet. Yeah. So, um, so that, that total reversal was, like, really, really, really challenging when you added the language stuff on top of it. And so... Ultimately, what I wanted to do was, is not to make people have to learn another language mm-hmm. because that language learning is, is pretty challenging. <laughs> and so it was like, hey, if we, could, if we could take this experience and like, bam, this kiss, this punch, and turn that into, use that as a foundation of understanding and like, how do we, how do we say stop in a way that like, you just... When it vibrates, you don't even think, you just stop. Like, ah, I don't know what, I, I feel like I just, you know, you, you just, I don't know, you just pause. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and, you know, we're, we're totally speculating, but a big part of our thesis is, is that we feel that there is some underlining kind of like neural pathways around how us as human beings collectively process touch information that the same way we found that, that middle C that everyone likes or enough people like, that there's a thing that like equates to red and haptics. Like what's the danger haptic, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like what's the, what's the, you know, the comforting haptic. Right. And so as we start to do more of this work, we're going to start to get a lot of data back of how people are understanding touch information. And ultimately, you know, like my personal dream is, is that, in 15 or 20 years, the same way that you can go to school right now to study graphic design or music theory, that you can go to school and study haptics because it's like that big of an area that we've built an entire major just dedicated to understanding physiology, haptic systems, designing, you know, like electronics and components need to be integrated in that in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Neuroscience needs to be integrated in that somewhere. Um, and put together this really comprehensive way of understanding what we're doing with touch information. Because like a graphic designer, a really good one, can design the fonts and the colors in a way that moves your eye 
over a poster the way that they want you to move it. And I would like to be able to do the same thing with haptics. I think that same, that same possibility exists within the haptic space. We just haven't found it yet. Yeah, or maybe I, have found it and I just haven't read it yet. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. I think I agree with you. I think that you definitely could find it if you look for it. Um, just, I, I just finished my bachelor's in neuroscience. So we had a portion that was sensory motor systems and you're right. Like we don't devote a lot of time to touch basically what you briefed us on in this episode is all we kind of cover in the course in terms of, um, the sensory motor cortex, the areas it's devoted to, how different areas have more, um, take up more space in the brain and just for anyone in our audience listening if you want like a visual of it you can google the homunculus which is h-o-m-u-n-c-u-l-u-s and it'll give you like a picture of the body overlaid over the brain and different sizes for each area it's a very nice picture yeah it's beautiful (laughs) but you can also check out we had another episode with dr cassio that talked all about social touch Um, episode three so if you're listening check that out just to take it back to that but you were saying that you want it to be kind of more reflexive right you want people to react to the touch in a way that's more it's not really conscious it's kind of like a subconscious reaction exactly like you know and the thing is is that we we don't know yet whether that is already in the the brain and we just need to kind of figure out what they are like the color red mm-hmm. or if it's something that if the association needs to be created um but i have a i have a i have a deep belief that there are some things that will just feel good to everyone and that there are some things that will feel bad to everyone the same way we can recognize a smile as a smile across every culture yeah. you know and so i'm wondering you know kind of at a deep philosophical level like and what ways are we connected in this sense? And the, the social touch, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a whole other part of it is that mm-hmm. right now, especially like in, 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 in the times that we're in now where everyone is in quarantine, you know, like having the ability to send touch information um, would be a ridiculously connecting component to the virtual experience. And so we know that touch is going to get there. You need it for virtual reality, right? You got, you know, 4K visuals, I think 5K now. I can like see like, you know, <laughs> you know, I can see like, I don't know, whatever, like your hairs that are out of place, right? You know what I'm saying? Like such high resolution. You know, yeah. like we have like the 360 degree 7.1 surround sound, right? I can tell that the box dropped behind me at five o'clock. <laughs> but then when I go and pick that box up, yeah. I have to pretend that I'm holding a box. Like the illusion yeah. is instantaneously broken and right. the immersive experience is instantaneously gone. And that's why I feel like video game companies were the first people who really saw the power of haptics and really saw the implementation. Like you're driving over, like, you know, you drive from a street onto like rocky terrain and the vibrations in the controller change, mm-hmm. you know, like to give you another sense or another source of feedback. But I'd like to speculate a bit further that right now we've only designed haptics as a supplementary experience to a visual or audio experience. Mm. We haven't really done 
let me start with haptics and maybe I do supplemental visuals or audio to support. But the whole experience is really a haptic experience. And so there's actually a few games um, that have come out that are really exploring this like totally haptic space. And there's some game developers who reached out to us because they wanted a peripheral that they could connect to so they can design more powerful haptic experiences with. And so, you know, the other thing is, is that like, you know, I once read somewhere that for every 100 papers we have written about vision, there's one written on touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might I be have, less than that. <laughs> <laughs> and I have my own speculations. Like my personal speculation is, is that touch has been so closely linked with intimacy, which was closely linked to sex, which is basically don't do that for most of human history in every culture, you know, mm-hmm. like, and so I think that like, you know, the things that progress are the things that we spend our time on. And I just think that, you know, we have had some major contributors who have definitely moved the haptics industry forward, but from a, from a point of view of the entire scientific community, not in the same way that we've done with vision or audition, you know, like, and so I feel that like a big part of the conversation is really is just jumping in to figure out, propose these hypotheses, see how they work out. And, you know, open up and share that community, share that data that you get, you know, with the community and and more particularly with the people who are using it so they can understand for themselves kind of like in a deeper way um, and and more integrate their own experience of their sense of touch. Um, So I think there's a a super powerful play um, that touches kind of at the frontier of exploration from the point of view of 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 design. Um, and it leaves a wonderful opportunity for us and, you know, companies that are, have also seen haptics as a, as a, as a space to play in, um, that is vast and large enough to really, uh, shoulder in, uh, you know, a lot of new methodologies or not necessarily new methodologies, the same methodologies, but new information because those methodologies haven't necessarily been applied to this industry. Yeah. And hopefully through collaboration with scientists and looking for these answers to these hypotheses you can find that innate kind of response that we have to touch and then it would just be a matter of conditioning if if we have this natural response it would be like you're you already know how to respond to it and now you just have to react exactly exactly and so yeah so there's 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 so much more work to be done but I think that one of the biggest use cases, you know, and, and also too, it's like outside of the video game industry, basically it's like sex toys, right? Yeah. You know, and, you know, touch is a really big part of intimacy and definitely a part of like sex toy and, and, and designs for intimate toys. And, you know, so it's like basically between video game controllers and sex toys, like that's kind of, and, and of course, like your cell phone vibrating to tell you commercially, that's all we've really done with haptics. Yeah. You know, but meanwhile, you have the skin that most of the time isn't really actively being used for much. Yeah, we can take it, take it beyond what we're doing. And I think we, we just need to, everyone needs to diversify haptics. Yeah. And also, too, but the other thing, too, is that like every, every industry starts where it starts, right? You know, it's yeah. like wearable technology used to be like, I'm going to put lights on my hoodie, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, but, but that's, but that's, but, but those things are important because like the obvious stuff has to be done. That's how you get to the, 
you know, like uh, in, in, in design school, you know, a big thing is, is like we, we, we have this process called ideation. And in the ideation process, you started off initially. And the idea is that you no idea is a no. You can't say no to anything. I can say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, how can we, you know, help people who are blind navigate? Oh, hey, you know what? Like we can just like make the whole world flat, and then, <laughs> you know, knock everything over. So there are no steps and no curves. And then, bam, problem solved. Right. Now, in a reality sense, I know that that has ridiculous cost constraints, you know, housing <laughs> has lots of constraints <laughs> that are problematic mm-hmm. you know, compared to the problem that it solves. But in this initial phase, every idea is a yes. And then what you do is after you go through your whole list of ideas, then you come back and you you tone them down. Like, OK, now apply real world stuff, because mm-hmm. a lot of times what you'll find is, is like get the obvious ideas out, even when they're trash. Because then the good idea comes after that. So, you know, like we had to do lights and hoodies. That was that was an important step in the wearable technology process. You know, like so people started making lights easier to put in the hoodies. You know, like mm-hmm. Arduino made a whole platform that you could sew in. But now mm-hmm. because Arduino made this platform that you can sew lights into your hoodie, you can get you can sew in other things as well. So it grows organically. And you know, like the happiness industry is still really small, but we see kind of like this is the beginning of what ultimately, you know, is going to be a very, very large opportunity, um, both from a financial point of view and from, uh, uh, you know, doing cool stuff point of view. You know, it's point just like view, yeah. so many things that we haven't even thought of that we're like, oh, hey, actually, mm-hmm. what if I took the radiation levels in this, you know, in this uh and this power and this nuclear power plant, and I turned that to haptic, so I could walk in and I could feel if there was a radiation leak. I don't know, right? You know, like, but we have all these really interesting ideas, and the the bigger part is is that you know, you know, science doesn't happen in a bubble. You know, it, it happens in partnerships with commercial interest. Yeah. And as much as we would all love to have the pure science of like <laughs> unimpacted by external, you know, motivations of you know funding sources, you know, yeah. the, is, is, that's not possible because, you know, at the end of the day, the things that move forward, like there, we had lots of scientific innovation, but the stuff that became useful had a business model behind it. Like, you know, electricity, right? Someone had to wire all these things into the ground. Someone thought that, Hey, this was important enough that we should rip up the ground or put <laughs> these wires in ahead of time. And that we should wire every single thing to each other. Like that was that was an impressive feat, you know, highways, right? You know, mm-hmm. like there's this infrastructure that has to be built. And, you know, like only you can only build that when you're when when you when you see the vision that's like that's much longer term. But also too, like if you never find that commercial vision, your scientific discovery doesn't ever have the impact that it could have. Yeah. So it's a really big balance of balancing the research. And like the exploration and, you know, with the, how does this work as a business? Who's going to mm-hmm. use this? Why would they pay for this over something else that they can use currently? Right. Yeah. Um, lots of considerations, I guess, when you're also trying to profit from it. Um, but you mentioned the visually impaired marathon runner who ran the whole marathon with Wayband in 2017. Have yeah. there been like other successes like that? No, no, we, we, we gave up marathon running. Uh, actually, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we haven't given it up. We, um, 
you know, our goal was never to run a marathon. That was Simon's goal. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. We we just thought we might be able to help him. And we were pretty sure that we couldn't help him, but we figured we would try because trying would probably get us further than not trying at all. Right. Um, and so, you know, we didn't get him through the whole marathon. We got him through 15 miles of it. So there's definitely room for improvement. But more importantly, we found out where the challenges in our device and in our system were. Mm-hmm. You know, like GPS is really horrible in cities. So actually running in New York City was like the worst thing. You know, mm-hmm. like if he, had, if he had like run in like, you know, like if he had run in like, I don't know, Alaska or like <laughs> the desert or like, you know, like somewhere that was like super flat and nothing was obstructing the view of sky. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, like the plain states, like it would have, it probably would have worked perfectly, but he didn't. He ran in New York, you know, like. Yeah. And so, you know, like we, we realized the challenges around GPS and the accuracy around it. And we started integrating solutions to fix that. And we also realized that, you know, that, you know, big cities also have big metal buildings that, you know, temporarily move the location of Magnetic North when you run past them. Um, and so that's quite problematic when you're basing the direction that you're facing off of how far you off of, are off of Magnetic North, right? right. So... It was a it was a very strong and powerful learning experience, and we we see other opportunities. Um, maybe one day we'll come back and we'll do the marathon proper. Um, hmm. But more than anything, it's kind of like getting from one to a hundred is is pretty straightforward, but getting from zero to one, right. you know, like that is really really challenging. And so, yeah. from our point of view, we feel like there's a few more zero to ones we'd rather knock out, you mm-hmm. know. Um, things that have never been done before, um, that we feel like by doing more, instead of going deep in one use case and perfecting this one particular use case, um, we want to explore the other use cases that the device potentially has to radically shift how people think about something. Yeah. I think that's, that's the bigger, that's the bigger, that's the bigger goal or not the bigger goal, but it's the the bigger picture is, is like we have the impact that we can make and we'll make impact on the people who buy Waybands. And that's amazing. You know, and I'm super proud to be part of this company and I'm super proud of my team for putting all this together. Um, but we can only affect, you know, so many of the people on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we all have a limited reach. And so by inspiring other people to be like, wow, if they did this really interesting, weird, cool thing, with haptics, for example, I wonder if I could do this, or maybe this would be better in haptics instead of as a visual experience. Like all of a sudden a conversation opens up to people that wasn't necessarily possible to them before. Not that it wasn't possible, but they didn't have the foundation. Exactly. But once you, it's kind of like the four minute mile, right? It was like a first, you know, human speed limit is the four minute mile. You can't possibly run a mile in under four minutes. And then one person did it. And after that, a lot of people did it. Mm-hmm. Because after you knew it was possible, it was no longer a matter of, is this possible or not? It's just, is this possible for me? Yeah. Right. A lot of and times we just, we just limit ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. The brain is so interesting in that way. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and I think it, it's very imp- inspirational from what you said, a, a big take home for some of, I know a lot of our listeners are students, but um, you you can fail and you can learn from it. And I think a lot of students might be afraid of failure, but you have to embrace failure and you have to like 
failure is the best thing that can happen to you because you get a lesson from it each and every time and all you can do is move forward and grow from it. Yeah, I mean, when I saw the the TED Talk, like my first instinct was like, more people need to know about this because what if they have similar thoughts but don't know that something like this exists out there already? Um, and I think that was my my goal for the podcast in general. It's like, how can I introduce these different intersections to students who may not know that they exist? Mm. Um, so, so I think it's it's really cool what you're doing. Um, and I looked into the psychological research out there for haptic technology or haptic experiences, and there is not much. Um, <laughs> I found a paper that like discusses some limitations or issues that designers have come across. And one issue stood out to me, just like considering it from a psychological perspective. And it was found that because haptic experiences tend to be very individual, um, the product often has to be tailored to the client's needs. And I saw that you were also the head of customer success on the website. Have you found that the tailoring aspect um, is an issue at all? Yeah, so um, you do need to have, and, and so I'll, I'll lighten up tailoring and pull it back a bit. So like mm -hmm. from the point of view of tailoring, like we're optimizing for mm -hmm. a blind and visually impaired experience. But for example, there are dozens, I don't, there may be hundreds, I have no idea, of, of different reasons that people lose their eyesight. There's like diabetic retinopathy, there's age-related macular degeneration, cataracts, mm -hmm. glaucoma, um, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome. You know, like these are all very different conditions that affect how much vision you have and what parts of your vision, you know, that go um, differently. Some you lose peripheral vision and you can only see center. Some you have peripheral but can't see center. Some you just kind of have like a like kind of like a like looking through a Vaseline bottle. You yeah. Know, like and so because of that, because every person's visual ability is different, even if you're blind and visually impaired, especially if you're blind and visually impaired. Um, what we're doing is we're we're we're, we're distilling the main points. And so we're tailoring to that. And so that's, so I, I feel like in, in that way we're optimizing. So if you came to me, you couldn't get a custom tailored experience of Wayband for you. Um, the most you could do, you could customize the vibrations so that, you know, you got the level of feedback that you wanted to have personally. Everyone's level of touch and their understanding of touch information is different. Um, but um, what we also want to do is darn, totally lost my thought in the middle of a sentence. Ugh, <laughs> when that happens. No, that happens to me too. A lot. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, what was I saying? Darn, I totally forgot. You're trying to optimize on... Yes, getting... thank you, thank you. Tailoring versus optimizing. So we won't necessarily tailor and build a custom experience for you because it ends up being a lot of individual work and you have to... That work doesn't scale really well. Um... But by, by, by optimizing for the experience instead of tailoring it, we found that we can fit in enough people who have a similar few problems, three or four, and build something that works awesomely well for anyone who's experiencing these problems, irregardless of the reason that you're experiencing it. So, right, you might be using a Wayband because 
you know, you're, you're biking through the city and, you know, your eyes are busy watching out for cars, you know, in New York. Or, you know, or you might build or you might be using a wayband because you're blind or visually impaired and it helps you to, like, find new locations that you haven't been to that are in walking distance from you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, but you still have the same need. There's still the same need. Vision isn't readily available. Um, audio as a secondary doesn't work so great possibility to use touch to communicate this information because the information is relatively simple. It's, it's, you know, it's a difference, like a kiss or a punch in the face is simple, right? But then I got to tell you, here's why I kissed you. Here's why I punched you in the face, right? That's like a language you need, right? <laughs> yeah. that but the kiss or the punch is very simple and it's very straightforward. So, you know, looking at kind of like, yeah, I, I guess like bringing it all in. So like, we picked a few problems that people who are blind and visually impaired have, but also that plenty of people who temporarily in different situations who are sighted have like firefighters who are like, you know, fighting, you know, a fire and can't see inside the building. So distilling versus tailoring, you know, optimizing, I say distilling kind of like the components that are like the real big major pain points. Cause you can't solve for everything. You know, or if you can, or if you can solve for everything, your device is ridiculously expensive. Um, and yeah, picking for that optimization and solving for the few things that you feel like you can solve for ridiculously well. And then after you optimize for that, those experiences, seeing in what other and other scenarios and situations, other people have this exact same problem, even if it's not necessarily the problem of the target group that you started with. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's good. It's kind of like, I guess you could compare it to glasses, right? That you get a prescription and some people might have the same prescription as you, but you're not like, there are different prescriptions. It's not like, oh, here's the one, one pair of glasses. And if it works for you, it works for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Listening to all of that, I'm like very inspired. My, um, my grandfather has cataracts. Um, and I know that it's really difficult sometimes for him to like maneuver around his house, um, in Nigeria. And so like, I definitely see products like, like Wayband being very helpful to not only like the visually impaired, but also like different, um, populations. Um, but we're going to round down now. I want to thank you for coming on to talk with us. Yeah. Um, this, I think for me has been like a very exciting episode i think the work you do is very cool and unique um it's not every day you come across a product that could be in like a black mirror episode (laughs) 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 well yeah i think it's awesome that you and your co-founders created a space to bring these ideas and concepts to life and i hope this inspires students listening to have who have certain ideas they'd like to bring to life, but are unsure on whether to pursue them. This is your sign. Do it. I was like, wait, can, can I add one more thing real quick before yeah, we go? Sure. Off? So you, you mentioned a part about failure and I, and I think that's so, so important um, where um, it's, it's, it's really important that um, if you look at all of life as an experiment, and, you know, ultimately, what are you doing? You're, 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 you're testing against multiple variables for some desired potential outcome of some sort. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so you need, you need to control, right? And so the, the idea is, is that a lot of times the experiments and the hypotheses that you have aren't necessarily going to work out, you know, mm-hmm. like, and it's just, it's just part of the way things are. Like sometimes you think like we thought that we could pitch our device to insurance companies um, by proving that we could keep people who are blind or visually impaired safer when they walk down the streets and reduce accident claims. And after like a month of research, I basically realized that the accident claims for people who are blind and visually impaired while walking are actually lower than the general population. Because when people who are blind and visually impaired are out walking, they actually pay attention to what's going on around them. Unlike mm-hmm. most of us who are sighted who are like staring into a phone, right? And so that hypothesis was proved to be, that month of work proved to be like not a fail, not like not necessarily valuable from the point of view of the goal that I had, mm-hmm. which is to sell our devices to insurance companies. But it's important to go through those processes because those things inform you that of the opportunities that one that might occur next that had you had not walked down that path. Like if you never walked down that path, you wouldn't have found that $20 bill that was sitting in a corner, you know, like, and I feel like basically the idea of, of failing, it, 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 I feel like, you know, maybe it's an American thing in particular, but I feel like as a culture, we really need to embrace this idea that like we see this montage where it's like, oh, hey, Steve Jobs in a garage. And then it's like, <laughs> he's at the company and it's like billion dollars, you know, like, it's, <laughs> and, and that's not the way it works, you know, yeah. like, and, and, and of course we understand that's not the way it works, but like the real way it works is, 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 is iteration and process and failure and make mistakes. And the people who really push things forward have a wonderful capability of seeing the mistakes that they make as wonderful opportunities to learn because you learn, you don't learn as much from your successes as you do from your failures. Mm-hmm. Like just success, you're kind of like graduated, done, whoop, next. <laughs> right? You know, Nobel Prize, whoop, you know, like, but you don't like when, but when you have a failure, you sit like, why did this fail? What mm-hmm. happened? What could I have done differently? Was this information that I got earlier? Should I have paid attention to it? Why did I not pay attention to it? Like, it, 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 it's a deep moment of self-reflection, which is basically kind of like going over your experiment with a thorough eye and looking to see where it really didn't work and what mm-hmm. things you might want to do next time or what things might you change next time, provided you did it again. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that this idea of like, you know, like one of my favorite movies is like uh, Meet the Robinsons. And you know what I'm saying? like. <laughs> Yeah, it's so great because, I mean, the way that they just have this family culture of celebrating failure. You know, mm-hmm. man, like, I was like, wow, this is exactly how it needs to be. Like, oh, my God, you failed. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, it's like because we like we if, if we thought we were I mean, we thought we were going to fail for the marathon. If, if mm-hmm. failure had if succeeding had been our only goal, then we wouldn't have run it in the first place. It was too much risk. Mm. But if you never take those risks, you never, you know, like you, 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 you end up with mediocre, you know? So, you know, I think it's super duper important, you know, especially as students, especially in this time while you're students, this is the safest place that you have. You won't get fired. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like nothing can really happen to you outside of like, maybe you get a bad grade and you have to take a class over it. Right. You know what I'm saying? But like, here's the opportunity to really embrace because it, it's harder to develop when there's more stuff on, like when you have more to lose, mm-hmm. you know, like once you have like, you know, like, you know, the kid and like the six figure salary job and 
making mistakes becomes harder and harder because all of a sudden you climb higher and higher up this ladder and a mistake is like a fall is a, is a further fall. But like mm-hmm. toddlers, they don't, they fall all the time. That's how you learn how to walk. You know what I'm saying? But they're also, they're really close to the ground. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. fall early, <laughs> fall fast. <laughs> and like, you know, like, and, and, you know, like it might take 15, 20 shots, you know, to get it right. I mean, you know, Edison is famous for like, you know, 10,000 times or something like that. Both spent $15 million. They spent $50 million in 15 years before they were able to develop noise canceling. Mm-hmm. You know, like some things just take time and, you know, like every failure is definitely a stepping stone to, to greater um, success. success and greater proficiency in what it is. Cause I don't want to say success cause it's, it's arbitrary, but mm-hmm. closer to get you toward the goal that you're hoping to achieve for yourself. Yeah. Um, my, my band teacher in high school used to say practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent um, mm. And in a sense, I think like everything we've been saying so far is at the core of of science that like, what did you learn from your mistakes and how can you better this experiment? And I didn't mention it this episode, but like our focus for the month of January is actually experimental psychology and neuroscience. Mm. And this like uh, modifying your hypotheses to make them stronger and like making your theory stronger is, is literally what experimental psychology and neuroscience is about. Um, and this is our last episode of the month. So I think that like <laughs> wraps it up pretty well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for those, for those really uh, enlightening words. Um, if you would like to know more about what WearWorks does, their website will be in the bio. Um, maybe some of you will expand our knowledge on haptic experiences by publishing a paper on it or like doing some research on it or making your own product. Um, feel free to let us know what you thought about this episode. Our email is thebraincorepodcast at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram at thebraincorepodcast and on Twitter at thebraincorepod. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating or a comment allows us to reach a wider audience. So if you can, please do so. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you are having a great brain day. 